Welcome to Eco-Friendly Homes, your go-to podcast for learning all things healthy, efficient, and eco-friendly in your home. I'm your host, Madison Hopkins, and I'm so thankful that you're here with me today. I'm a certified green real estate agent in Denver, Colorado, helping you live more sustainably by sharing tangible steps each month on how to reduce your home's emissions, save money, buy cleaner, build greener, and to discuss what an eco-friendly home could and does look like. If you're ready to work with me as your Denver-based real estate agent, email me, madison at movingwithmadison.com. And remember to hit subscribe so you can get notified every second and fourth Wednesday of the month when I release an episode on how to live more eco-friendly in your home. Now sit back, relax, grab your favorite tea, have one of your favorite cookies, and enjoy the show. This podcast episode is sponsored by Millennium Mortgage, your lending solutions for the place you call home. Hey, podcast listeners, and welcome back to Eco-Friendly Homes. Today, we are talking with PJ Villardo of Millennium Mortgage. And Millennium Mortgage, as you probably just heard on our intro to this podcast, is our newest podcast sponsor. So thank you so much for being here today, PJ, and for sponsoring this whole podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Madison. Glad to be here. Yeah. So for those of you watching on the video on YouTube, he does have two, his logo behind him. That's a double M for millennium mortgage. Nice, nice shot. (laughs) But yeah, so PJ has been a mortgage broker for about 10, over 10 years, 10 years, something like that. Right, PJ? Yep. Going into 10th year this year. Awesome. Nice year to celebrate. So tell us a little bit more about that. How did you get into becoming a mortgage broker? You, it sounds like, so that was 2012. So not terribly long after the 2008 crash, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of, of different loan originations that most people have not. Yeah, absolutely. Quick backstory. You know, my, my family was in the mortgage business uh, for a long, my, my mom actually was a part of that big crash in, in 2008. She was a uh, account manager with the second large, largest subprime lender, which had then was called Fremont Investment and Loans. And I, I was in, gosh, let's see, back, back in the heyday, I was like in junior high. And I remember going into her office with her on the weekends and that's when everything was paper. So we'd go into room and have all these files, you know, of all these, these papers. And she'd be like, PJ, get me the Smith file. So I'd, I'd get the Smith file and just help her. So that's how I got into the business. Fast forward, you know, through graduated high school, went to college. My mom said, you know what, you should really get licensed because you could do a couple of loans while you're going, while you're going to school and did that, you know, graduated college and then started the career California and which now led into Florida and now doing loans in, in multiple different States, including your very own Colorado. Colorado. Hey, (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah. I love that you started so young. So so many people who I see who have been in this real estate industry at their like earliest years, like 18, 22, they, they're like firecrackers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Trend, trendsetters or, you know, disruptors, whatever you want to call it. Sure. So today I really want to go over with you for the podcast listeners out there, because this is an eco-friendly homes podcast. And, you know, it's for me, it originates through my career in real estate. What does the home purchasing process look like? Because for a lot of people listening, you might be 
they might've come to this episode um, because I'm very focused on sustainability, but part, and I have an episode about the financial sustainability of getting into real estate. I think it was episode number, like, I don't know, like 10 or something like that. It was in 2020. So it's been a while, but there is like a sustainable financial model that people can tap into when purchasing real estate. You know, you, you are able to self-sustain your lifestyle because you are now a homeowner and maybe you rent out your house to roommates and that helps pays off your mortgage. Maybe you eventually rent out your whole house and then you're making passive income and that sustains your lifestyle. So I really like the financial part about real estate for that sort of marriage between real estate and sustainability and just sort of like a different essence of the word. So I really want to talk to people today about like how they get a loan and kind of walk everyone through that. And then what that's like for first time loan receivers. And then the first time people sell their house and like what happens to their loan then. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's, there's always a lot of information that goes into real estate. And I think for, for the, the millennial or even, you know, Gen Z generation coming up, one thing to, to note on a statistical standpoint is that for the millennials, we're going to be the largest, and I'm I'm towards you know probably the 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 edge of the the millennial generation. But we're going to be we already are the largest group of homeowners moving forward. The average age of a homeowner is now is 33 years old. So coming in the next few years, for those listening that are in the real estate industry or not, that decision is going to be coming sooner rather than later. So you know to try to tie in the two as far as you know sustainability. And, and the financial part of that, you know, the, the home loan process, I'll say this is it's not the most fun thing in the world. You know, whenever you're asking people for financial information and, and all these things, it's, it's like, sometimes it can be like, like pulling teeth. We try to utilize a lot of different things at millennium, as far as technology is concerned, because everyone's busy. So I, I joke <laughs> with, with my referral partners. And I say that, looking at homes. So like for what you do, Madison, looking at homes is the ice cream, right? What I, what I present is the broccoli and people want to eat ice cream before they eat broccoli. But you know, like when we were all growing up, if you eat the broccoli first, your parents, I'll eat the broccoli. And then, you know, you get the ice cream. So yeah, it, it, you know, the, the financial part of it is important. We, we try to take a lot of the, the boring, difficult stuff out of it because our goal is to get the transaction closed. So the the homeowner can then, you know, get their, get their home and be happy. I love your ice cream broccoli analogy, because I was actually thinking about analogies like this recently. And, and you and I are currently working together with a couple different clients and everyone. And this is another reason that I want to have this episode, because a lot of people are like, I'm going to sign up for my Zillow account and I'm going to start browsing through homes and it's going to be great. There's so much ice cream. I really like ice cream, getting all the little samples at the ice cream store. And then we'll just to focus on that. And then you decide what ice cream flavor you want. And the cashier is like, you actually have to pay for the ice cream first, ma'am. And you're like, oh no. And then you can get your full scoop of ice cream. So yeah, it's totally true. Like there's really, you can totally shop on Zillow all day just for fun. But when it comes to actually purchasing a house, like it doesn't make sense for me as a real estate agent and for clients to go out and look at homes that you're not going to be qualified to buy that are not in your price range. And especially in our current market across the nation, but especially here in Denver, that's going to be gone 
in two days or less by the time you finally get your documents into you, PJ. So yeah, like you have to have the broccoli before you can have the ice cream. So what does the broccoli consist of? Like, what are the first steps that people need to take when, when eating their broccoli? I I, I always say this, like the, the pre-approval process nowadays is, is more important than I think it was, you know, many years back. Cause it's just like what you said. I mean, the last, the last two years, you know, since 2020, our, our country across the board has seen unbelievable year over year appreciation in. So for professionals or um, podcast listeners, you know, for real estate professionals, your time has now become finite, you know, meaning that you need to work with, it's no longer like, Hey, you, you have a friend that you just want to show uh, a house to. Now it's like, you need to know if that friend is pre-approved. And for the podcast listeners, it's so important that your pre-approval is done upfront because then it's solidified. Then, then, you know, you can look because to go back to the broccoli and ice cream analogy. If you're looking at all this stuff, you're getting inundated, you know, real estate is an emotional buy. So if you're emotionally invested and you start looking, but you're not financially sound, then you're getting your hopes up for nothing. And, and that's, you know, that's what, what we don't want. So also like the second, I think the, the flip side of that coin is that a lot of people think that they can't afford a house. And then all you really need to do is have a mortgage broker is have PJ look over your documents and tell you what you can and can't afford. And people are frequently surprised what they're able to afford. So there's definitely like the flip side to that coin is sometimes, you know, the figuring out your, your loan information and what you can actually get a loan for is actually an ice cream in and of itself. Yep. Agreed. A hundred percent. And, and it's just knowing, you know, a lot of people don't know, and there's so much misinformation out there with, you know, social media, technology, all this, you know, we, we look at stats all the time and, and you'll be surprised, but we do these, you know, questionnaires and things. And how many people think you have to put down 20% to buy a house? You know, it, it's a large, there's a large number. Our, our last um, survey that we did, it was over 62% thought you had to have 20% to buy a house. And it's not true. So like you said, I mean, just getting, getting the information for some, from someone who's in the industry, not your parents who, you know, bought a house 20 years ago or 30 years ago, or not your friend. I mean, our market changes. I mean, it's, it's changed almost monthly in the last, you know, few years. So I agree with you hundred percent getting that solidified information or questions even answered. I mean, I always try to get on the phone with someone right away with a client, take 15 minutes, 20 minutes, because it sets the expectation, you know, so, so much better moving forward. Yeah. Okay. So let's do a little bit of pretending like I'm a first time home buyer and I'm coming to you and saying, Hey, PJ, what, what do I do? Hi, nice to meet you. What do you need from me? <laughs> so usually, you know, the, 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 I have the same conversation, but it, it, it would go something, you know, along the lines of, Hey, Madison, you know, thanks so much for reaching out. You know, our pre-approval process is pretty straightforward. The first thing that we would do is get you set up on a secure borrower, which you would receive a link to complete the loan application. All right. After you complete the loan application, it's going to ask you to upload a certain amount of, of documents. Obviously, you know, quick sidebar, if you're self-employed, there's going to be a couple, you know, more things. If you're, you know, an employee, like a person with a, a W-2 wage, we're going to ask you to upload, you know, those things. Once that is done, 
it goes to our operations team. Our operations team will then, you know, pull your credit report, make sure the documentation you uploaded looks good, your application looks good, and then we'll, we will review it for pre-approval. So normally that process, depending on how fast you fill out the loan application and upload those documents could take a day, could take two days. Our typical turn time to turn around your pre-approval back to you is usually within 24 to 48 hours. Awesome. So, you know, the only documentation you're really digging for upfront for the average per is pay stubs, your most recent 30 days of pay stubs. So for podcast listeners, here's what your homework would be if, if you're playing along with us. And this days is if you're pay a W-2 person, correct? Correct. Yep. yep. Okay. Yeah. Let's so. go through like the different, I want to, I want to talk about W-2 people. And then I want to talk about self-employed people because there's a lot that there's a lot of different avenues in the self-employed realm as well. So let's talk about the W-2s real quick. Yep. And then I want to get into that one. So okay. yeah, you need so, pay stubs. Yep. So W-2s would be most recent 30 days of pay stubs. That's number one. It's going to be two months of your most recent bank statements. And that's so we, you know, as the broker and or the lender can verify you have the funds to put the down payment. Okay. Number three is going to be your W-2s for the last two years. And the fourth item is going to be your driver's license. So for a W-2 person, it's those four things. Okay. So let's talk about real quick, um, someone who just changed jobs. So how okay. does that kind of differ? Because you said W-2s for the last two years. So what if they went from like a 1099 into a W-2 job and now they're ready to get their mortgage? So we always say this. So rule of thumb if, if I could share, you know, some, some advice with anyone rule of thumb is, is that if you are self-employed, every lender would like to see a history of two years. So what's, it's much easier to go from being self-employed or a 1099 independent contractor to a W-2. If you're switching industry into a W-2, we can use whatever the W-2 wages, whatever the W-2 income is moving forward. If it's reversed, if you're going, you were a W-2 and you decide, hey, I'm going to open a business or I'm going to become an independent contractor, that's where it gets tricky. And that's where sometimes you, that's really where you need to speak to a mortgage professional because switching from a W-2 to a 1099 is instantly going to trigger that, that two-year requirement. Okay. So for, for people who are in W-2 jobs and have been for a little while, it's pretty straightforward. You just need, you said the 30 days of bank state. What did you say? 30 days is what? 30 days pay stubs. So essentially if you get paid okay. every two weeks, it's two pay stubs. Okay. That's what was going every- on in my head. I kept thinking two of something, but yeah. got you pay, get paid every two weeks. So your two weeks of pay stubs for a whole month. And then your two years of W-2s. It's twos, like the twos, two, two, two. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Okay. Well then let's dive a little bit more into if you were a W-2 going into a 1099. Yeah. So 1099 follows the same logic as being self-employed. You're considered an independent contractor. And so if you've, if, if you're self-employed and you started, let's say a business or you're independent contractor, when it comes to buying a home, the underwriter is always going to want to see a two-year history. So without getting crazy technical, because I don't want to make you know, the, the listeners head spin or like go down a rabbit hole, but just think of, of two years. So they, they're going to want to see your personal tax returns for two years. And they're going to want to see business tax returns for two years. If, if you, you know, have like an entity name or a company name, if you're an independent contractor at 1099, 
then you know that 1099 is typically filed on your personal tax returns. Right. Yeah. Or if you're a sole proprietor. Mm-hmm. Yep. You'll have a you'll have a business tax return. So, what if you don't make money the first year of your business? Does that two years? still kind of qualify you for anything or do you kind of need that third to show like two years of money income? Yeah. So it depends like right now, you know, from, from 2020 was a tough year for everyone. No, you, mm-hmm. no matter what industry, some, a couple of industries, you know, thrived. Um, I know for us, the mortgage business was great in 2020, but a, a lot of, a lot of other instances, it wasn't the case. So for example, a lot of businesses, 2020 look, didn't look good or they filed a loss. And so, you know, that typically what the underwriter is going to do is they're going to average the income. So you made X amount in 2020, you made X amount in 2021, they're going to average the income for the two years, add them together, and they're going to divide it by 24 months, you know, to give you an income. So if it was worse in 2020 and starting to pick up, obviously the income is going to look, look better for, for the time, you know, time to come. And so that that adding and then dividing that's sort of how that works whether you're 1099 or w2 right to kind of get your your you do that right to get your monthly mortgage payment and then you kind of add that up to what that could look like over 30 years and that's like your home loan but you you do that adding and dividing to see what people could pay on a monthly basis right exactly so yeah for w2 what what the underwriter will do is they'll use your current income so for example, if you if you make more money now than you did over the last two years, they're going to use the most current income right now. But when you're self-employed, and the reason why the, the thought process behind the self-employed part is they're trying to prove stability. So we all know if, if you are self-employed, it's ebbs and flows, right? The business kind of goes, goes in waves. And so they're just trying to find, you know, some stability. Hey, you had a down year. Hey, you had an up year. They're averaging. This was, you know, the, the two-year average. So for W-2s, they're going to use the most current income. You know, they just want to see the history that you, hey, I've been a W-2 for, for two years. And then for being um, self-employed, they want to try to find, find that stability. Okay. And then let's talk a little bit about like the monthly mortgage payment. So a lot of people want to shop in a certain price range, but what we really need to have people think about is what they can pay on a monthly basis. And so how does that sort of change? Maybe like, how does the loan change the mortgage, monthly mortgage payment? How do interest rates change the monthly mortgage payment? How, how is that so flexible and so quickly changed even before, even between the time where you say, here's your quote and the 30 days later, when you're actually closing on the house. Yeah. So typically what, you know, a good rule of thumb that I learned when I, when I first started in the mortgage business was everybody thinks if you go up in price, it's drastically going to change your mortgage payment. Or if you go down in price, it's drastically going to change it. And the rule of thumb that I learned that I'll, you know, I'll never forget is this. And when I share this with people, they're like, oh, this is really good. This helped me for a long time. So whatever you change your loan amount, not your purchase price, but your loan amount, whether you increase it or decrease it by $5,000, right? So up or down by 5,000, it's going to change your mortgage payment monthly about 20 to $25 a month. So, you know, 25, for example, $25,000, let's take the same analogy. $25,000 
if you increased your loan by $25,000, right? So you go from borrowing 300 to 325, your payment's going to change about a hundred bucks. And people are shocked to hear that. They're like, wow, you know, I, I didn't realize that that's, that's, you know, that's like my monthly Starbucks bill, or that's my, <laughs> you know, that's going out to eat, you know, to a, a nice dinner, you know, once a month. So there's a lot of ways I, I try to get, you know, back to the sustainability part is being financially sustainable is that really looking at where, where the money's going, because for a lot of people for their mortgage, when it comes to buying a house, it's, it's not that they're already spending the money. It's that they're reallocating the money that they're spending and putting it towards their, their asset. Hi, podcast listeners. This is your host, Madison Hopkins, quickly interrupting my show to give you a Denver real estate inside scoop that could help you put money into your pockets and increase your personal wealth. The average renters in Denver pay $1,875 for a one-bedroom apartment around 840 square feet. And the most expensive renters in Denver pay just over $2,400 a month. And of course, that does not include parking. So if you're in this average or above average range, you could actually be paying the exact same amount, but towards your own condo in the Golden Triangle neighborhood, Cheeseman Park neighborhood, or Congress Park area. If this is blowing your mind and you're just ready to put that money that you're throwing away in rent back into your own pocket, contact me, your local green real estate agent, and I'll introduce you to a trusted and vetted lender, our podcast sponsor, PJ Villardo of Millennium Mortgage, who will give you your exact loan profile so you can keep that money and increase your personal wealth. Now let's hop back into the show. You know, for, for most of us, 95, probably percent of us, this is going to be the largest financial asset or purchase that we're ever going to have or make. And so, you know, our team, we, we take it seriously. I mean, we don't, a lot of people just talk numbers and so forth, but we truly take it seriously because our goal is not to do a loan for someone one time and say, see you later. Selfishly, you know, I want to do every single loan, you know, that, that, that person's ever going to need or their family's ever going to need. And so, you know, back, back to that, you know, the question of, of how does it change? It changes a lot. You know, when, when we look at, at someone's, you know, financial picture and the question that I always ask is this, most people are either living rent-free. So whether they're living with family or they're paying rent. So the question that I ask always, it's not, Hey, how much are you looking to buy? It's what are you paying in rent now? And what would you feel comfortable with for a mortgage payment? You know, if you're paying $1,500 a month in rent now, are you hoping to pay the same or would you be willing to pay more, you know, when it comes to you actually owning, owning the house? And that's usually where the, the parameter of the conversation starts. It's there because I'm sure everyone would love to buy a million dollar house, but you know, it's not, it's not, you know, the case in, in a lot of instances. Yeah. So I like that number. I've actually not heard that one yet. The every $5,000 up or down on the price of the loan changes yeah. your mortgage payment monthly by 20, yeah, about 20 bucks. Yeah. 20, 20 to 25 bucks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And obviously, then there's another one. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'll just say obviously in the higher price range, that monthly number can change a bit, but it's, it's held true for, for, for many, many instances. And then there's one that I've learned that I'm going to let you say, because I, I, I don't want to butcher it, <laughs> but it's <laughs> the interest rate. So every half a point on your interest rate changes your mortgage 
your your total loan amount by what is it? Is it half a point? Is fifty thousand dollars on the mortgage? So so that yeah, you're you're right. So it's it's half a point. You know, equates to about fifty thousand. But the problem is, is that when you start throwing in other instances like that works from strictly a a mortgage perspective, but when you're adding things like taxes, property taxes, homeowners insurance, other things like that, it can really throw a wrench into that that calculation. Oh, okay. So it's not as straightforward. No, the easiest the- one is is the one that I said is like every five thousand up or down in loan amount changes your payment. Just keep it easy. Twenty dollars changes your payment about about twenty bucks. That that's the easiest. You know, um, I like to think of it like layman's terms. I like easy. I like easy thinking, Madison. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Then I I won't use that interest rate one anymore because it's really hard to catch an interest rate, too. You know, they change every day. They change every week. I mean, it's really hard to to tell someone. And I'm sure. I mean, this is your field that you tell people their interest rate. I I tell them talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and that's that's the hard part about you know like that that analogy that you used is that interest rates are so ever changing that, you know, that that's, that's the tough part. So I, I like using the, the numbers, you know, more of the, the numbers analogy, the up or down in loan amount changes it, you know, 20 bucks a month. That's like, okay, that's easy to remember. Yeah. And I feel like that would calm people down a little bit more too. And that's like a large part of my job is emotional management for clients whenever they're, you know, especially first time home buyers, not knowing what's going on or what's good or what's bad. And if someone has like an interest rate that they thought they were going to get, and then it actually went up, well, just remind them, well, what was your loan amount? Because you're kind of shopping in that same price range regardless. So exactly. so. So when someone is buying a house, and you said a lot of people think that they need to bring 20% to the table. You can often put three, 3.5% down. Yeah. So that that's FHA in its, in itself is uh, the minimum down payment is three and a half percent. Okay. So yeah, just to clarify FHA, who can get that? What are the parameters for that? But I know it's actually very common that people can get that. And so you don't actually have to put 20% down. You can put 3.5% down on a house. Some people would like to put 20% down so they can have more equity in the house to begin with. But some people don't want to put that much money down if they don't have to. So let's talk about the FHA down payment for a minute. Yeah. So um, FHA loan is designed for first time you know, home buyers. And really what it does is that it allows you to put a low down payment all right, as low as three and a half percent. And then what happens is, is that there's, there's two, there's two facets to FHA that are different than conventional. So one of the facets is, is that there's something called upfront mortgage insurance premium. Okay. And what that is, is that it's, it's a percentage of money that goes into, you finance it. So it gets added to your loan amount. Okay. And then what happens is it goes into that pool of money and then it, it gets distributed amongst others who are you know, going to be able to get FHA loans. And so that, that's one of the things. So you have upfront mortgage insurance premium, and then you also have something called monthly mortgage insurance. Now that's at a set standard anytime, whether it's conventional loan or an FHA loan, there's, there's mortgage insurance. The two different ways that it's done is on an FHA loan, it's at a set standard. Okay. It's, it's a, it's a certain percentage. I'm not going to start shooting out numbers to everybody because 
when listening to a podcast is like, it just, it'll go right over their head. So it's at a set standard. FHA is really designed for first time home buyers who have maybe less than perfect credit, you know? So it's, if, you know, for, for us, we go down to a middle credit score of 580 on an, on an FHA loan. All right, which is is great for a lot of people. It, it opens up, you know, the box, so to speak, for for a lot of those who didn't think they could even get a loan to to be able to get. So that that's you know really how FHA works. The benefits of it is interest rates are typically lower than conventional interest rates. the The bad news about it is is that that mortgage insurance that's on there monthly that I mentioned is on there as of right now, according to the guidelines, is on there for the life of the loan. So the only way to get rid of that mortgage insurance for FHA is to refinance the loan, you know, at some sometime in the future into into a conventional loan. Okay. So I hope I hope that explains it a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I'll I'll leave it at that and not not too <laughs> deep in the weeds like you're saying. So for first time home buyers since that's kind of what we're talking about right now and then i also want to ask you about people who are buying a second home their second property maybe they're selling the first one or just buying a second one in general i want to talk about the different loan possibilities and down payments for that one let's go ahead and do that first yeah and then i want to okay. ask again about the first time home buyer so what what are the different down payment opportunities for people buying an investment property or a second house after they sell it Okay. So typically we'll, I'll do this one first. So typically if you're, you know, what I recommend is this in order to get the the best pricing or the best interest rate, putting down at least 20% on an investment property is, is preferred. You can go down to as low as 15%, but then again, you're carrying mortgage insurance. So when, when I'm educating clients, with a primary residence, it's very different information or, or so to speak, like your investor hat, then I would talk to them about their, prim- their primary versus an investment because it's two totally different thought processes. So again, for the best pricing, 20% down when you're looking at in, an investment property. A lot of the times what I tell, tell clients is this, is that when you buy your primary residence, you live there for like a, you know, let's say a year, two years, three years, whatever it is. Then Instead of looking to, unless you love the house, you know, and you want to stay there, what I would recommend is that renting the ha- that house. So your primary that you lived in for two or three years, because then what you could do is you can leverage, you can buy a new primary residence, right? And rent the house that, that you were living in. And when you buy the new primary, you could again, hey, I'm going to go with a conventional loan and I'm going to put 5% down you know, or as little as 3% down. And that's going to be my new primary residence. And I'm going to rent this house. Yeah. So that's a way better way to leverage rather than saying, Hey, I bought my first house for a year. And now I'm going to go put 20% down on something. At least if you're just starting out or, you know, you, you bought your house a few years ago, there's not many people I know, unless they're very successful and, and usually older that have, you know, another 20% just lying around to buy up properties. So for, for the average person, that that's a much better way to, to go about it. I totally support you know, so, that method of, yeah. of home ownership too. Cause then, like I mentioned earlier, you're generating passive income for yourself and creating a more sustainable lifestyle. For you. I want everyone to have $3,000 of passive income. That's <laughs> what I want for everyone. 
yeah, because that, that would be, be drastically life-changing for people, you know? Yep. And the thing is, is that, you know, unlike what I always try to, to share is that, you know, real estate is one of the few things that are going to appreciate, you know, it's, it's like being able to pass on generational real estate. Like you just said, you use the term life-changing, you know, I, I would love to be able to give one or two properties to each of my kids. You know, how, how life-changing would that be for them? Whether they want to live in it, whether they want to sell it and start a business or do whatever. But that's, that's something that I personally work towards for, you know, to leave a legacy for, for my kids, but that that's the best way to, to leverage it. You know, you buy a primary, you live in it for a year or two, then you move on to another primary and then you have, you have passive income and you're not having to put down 20% if you don't have it, if you have it great, but if you don't, you, you don't need to. Yeah. You know, and so, so what about for people who are going to sell a house and then just move into their, their second? So it's the same their, thing. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. So you could sell the house, whatever the proceeds are, you can either utilize all of that and, um, and put down if it's 20% you have or more, or if it's less, I mean, in the last two years, at least we're starting to realize that that cash is king. And a lot of the times, if you're going to be buying another house that needs some work, some renovation, something else. I mean, it goes back to, to what we just said before, right? Every 5,000 up or down in loan amount is going to change your payment about 20 bucks. So it, it just goes, it goes back to that. And, um, you know, if someone wants to, to really stash some money away, or they want to put it back into the house or whatever, start a business, whatever the case is, you can put down as, as little as 3%, you know, going so on even a conventional for loan. People buying a home again. Is there a, a qualification that people need to meet? Like, can they use the FHA more than once? So th that's when it gets like a little convoluted. So th the long answer to that is yes, you can have two FHA loans at, at one time, but it starts to get very difficult, you know, to do because really the FHA loan was designed to have to be done and have one primary residence. So if you bought a house, FHA one year, right? And then you decide to move and buy another house using an FHA loan the next year. A lot of the times it gets difficult because there's usually certain parameters, distance requirements. Does it, you know, does it make sense and so forth? And that always is going to go back, back, you know, to an underwriter and then be structured with your, with your mortgage professional. Hopefully, you know, one of us at most. For people selling their house and then selling their first home and then wanting to buy a new home, they would just do a conventional loan with about 5% down could be like their minimum safe minimum, yeah. not, that, that, not convoluted. That's what I would say. FHA loan is great. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. If someone has the ability to go conventional, typically in the long term, that's going to be, you know, a better case. And, and someone can argue, you know, different points of view and so forth. So that that's usually the position that, that we take, because I want it to be better best for someone in the long term. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, then PJ, I know we're coming close on our time. The other thing that I wanted to ask you is for people buying a house, what is all the different monies that they need to bring to the table? So I know we have our closing costs that typically range about three to 5% of the loan. So the loan yep. or is it the purchase price? So typically we use purchase price. We just okay. say we say purchase price. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the rule there, there's, there's three really different, different parts of, of the, the funds needed for closing. And the first one is obviously your down payment. The second one are your closing costs. Those are your costs associated with the loan. 
Okay. Your, your title work, your, your appraisal, you know, different homeowners insurance, things like that. The third item that usually gets construed or they mix together in the closing costs, that's hard for consumers to differentiate is called escrows or impounds. They're interchangeably used. So escrows and impounds are if you're going to include your property taxes and your homeowner's insurance in your mortgage payment. Those are going to be included. And, and just for reference, podcast listeners, it is February and my past clients have been reaching out to me. What is this that I'm getting in the mail about my taxes? And I'm like, don't worry, you included that in your escrow or impound whenever you closed. So they're already included in your mortgage, your monthly mortgage. So you, your, your taxes are covered and they're all very relieved because they didn't have yeah. that cash stored away somewhere else. Exactly. And, th and that's, that's the thing. So obviously if you're including the taxes and insurance in your mortgage payment, when you, when you buy your property, the funds needed for closing, you know, to bring to the table are usually more because you're funding either that impound or that escrow account. But those, those are the three things. The rule of thumb that we use is your closing costs are anywhere from, you know, two to three for the, the purchase price. And then your escrows or your impounds typically can be another two to 3%. In a lot of areas, that's on the high side. For example, in, in Denver, that's, that's on the very, very high side. In, in California, it's also on the high side. In states where, where we are, where our headquarters are in Florida, that's, that's pretty average. So each state, you know, can, can be tweaked a little, a little bit differently. That's a good parameter to use. Okay, great. Well, then I think we have pretty much covered a really good range of things today. Do you have anything else that you think podcast listeners to this episode would like to know that we haven't covered? Not, you know, not off the top of my head. Again, I would just reiterate, you know, it's important to get pre-approved first because it, it's going to make the process a lot smoother. Eat your broccoli before you eat the ice cream, you know, get, get pre-approved, speak to, to a professional and someone that, that you feel comfortable with. You know, I, I come from a very humble background and I treat everyone like family and sometimes it can be to, to a fault, but again, you know, the, the goal is to have long-term relationships and not short-term commissions. Well, I love that PJ. And yes, I'll have your email included in the show notes for people who just want to click that as well as my email. And just for y'all listening, that's PJ at millenniummortgage.io. And can you spell millennium mortgage first? Because I've been practicing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it, this is where it gets, it gets a little confusing for people, but it's M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-U-M. -N -N so millennium. Two L's, two N's. And then if you do millennium and then followed directly by mortgage, it's also two M's. Correct. So two, two L's, two N's, two M's in, in, in the email. You can also, you know, look us up on a millennium mortgage LLC on Instagram. Check us out on, you know, Twitter, Facebook, the whole nine. We're on there. So. And you'll have a nice website too. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I really like it. I like seeing Florida in the image. I'm like, Oh, nice. The beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Palm trees. Yeah. And the nice clear water and the greenish blue water too. Yeah. And then you're going to have to add a picture of Colorado on there here soon enough, PJ, because you're based in Colorado now too. And so we need the mountains represented. Yep. For sure. Yeah. And we do, you know, the States that, that we're in for those, you know, who are interested or to reach out to us, it's, 
it's California, Colorado, Florida, and we have a couple new states, you know, in, in the works. So if you follow us on Instagram or in, on any of our social handles, you'll see those up and coming. Awesome. Yeah. I didn't realize y'all are in California now. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Your homeland. Homeland. Nice. I love it. Well, thanks so much for being a guest today on Eco-Friendly Homes, PJ. And anyone who wants to reach out to me or PJ, you got to eat PJ's broccoli first before we can go get ice cream. <laughs> so reach out to PJ and, and then we will all be in touch and it'll be great. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Madison. Appreciate it. Podcast listeners, thank you so much for listening to today's show. I really hope you learned something new from your go-to podcast on all things eco-friendly in the home. I'm your host, Madison Hopkins, and I am signing off. If you would like to contact me, email me, madison at movingwithmadison.com. And remember to hit subscribe so you can get notified every second and fourth Wednesday of the month on how to live more eco-friendly in your home. And I will see y'all next time.